Heavenly Father, with the Apostle Paul, we ask by your Spirit this morning that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we would know and see Jesus, that we would know the hope that is set before us, the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. Father, that we, we, we would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power that is directed towards us in Christ this morning by faith. And Lord, that you would work. God, we need you to work by your great might. We, we thank you, God, that you have worked by the great might and power of our Lord Jesus Christ and that you continue to do that work in our hearts by faith, by the Spirit of Christ. And so now be with us as we come to Holy Scripture. Lord, be with us. We need you. We need you to see. We need you to feel. We need you to know. We need you to do everything that brings us life. We ask you to do that by faith here this morning. Please, please show up and do that for us, we pray. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This season of Epiphany, the season of Epiphany, we have been considering together questions of identity, and today is the last Sunday. So the question of identity could be summarized with this simple yet incredibly complex question, who am I? Who am I? We began seven weeks ago on the first Sunday of Epiphany, considering not my identity first, not who am I, but who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We started with the baptism of Jesus on the feast of the baptism of our Lord. What does his baptism have to say about our baptism, about my baptism? So I said that Sunday, and I'll say it a thousand times from this pulpit. I probably already have said it close to a thousand times, but I will say this for the rest of my life, that Jesus at his baptism, he was identified with us, or else he was fully identified with sinful humanity. That's what he did so that, so that we might be identified with him, so that we might be identified with him in our baptism. So he identifies with us so that we might be identified with him. Or as St. Athanasius said a long time ago in many different ways, God became man so that man might become God. This is what is happening in the incarnation, in our redemption. This is the gospel story. It's, not, it's a conflict not concerning our identity first. It's a conflict concerning the identity of Jesus. Who did he say he was? And so that's where we began seven weeks ago. At his baptism. God the Father declared from heaven in Matthew chapter 3, you remember this, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And today on the last Sunday of Epiphany, which is Transfiguration Sunday, again God the Father declared from heaven in Matthew chapter 17, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And he added these words, listen to him. Listen to him. So we began and we end this series on identity with Jesus. So identity is fundamentally, it's not about me first. It's about who is Jesus and how am I found in him. So that's what we're going to do here this morning. 
Now, for the last 11 days, and still ongoing, according to the internets here this morning, you might have heard that there's a revival going on at Asbury University in Kentucky. It's, it's getting around, I guess. I don't really, I, I really honestly haven't researched it that much, um, and you guys know how much I like to keep my head in the ground and not pay attention to the news in general. Uh, and even I heard about this revival at Asbury, and hundreds of students have gathered in a university chapel, and by all accounts, it's to pray and to worship God through song and in Holy Scripture, and there's been a lot of repentance, a lot of con- conviction of sin and confessing sin one to another, and it hasn't stopped yet. It hasn't stopped yet. Now, some are calling this Asbury Revival, and it's getting this title now on Wikipedia, so you know it's true, the Gen Z Revival. I did my research like Gen Z does, all right? So uh, I just looked on Wikipedia. There you go, right? That's not just a Gen Gen Z thing. Gen Z, the TikTok generation that is on, that is on 24-7, or else they are performing. They're constantly pressured to perform, to define themselves, to even create their own language or their own identity. And Gen Z is exhausted from all the attention-seeking. Whatever my generation is, I don't really know what I am. In 1983, some of you guys could tell me after the service what I actually am. I don't really like generational labels. Whatever my generation is, though, we are skeptical of Gen Z. That's what old people do to younger generations, young people. That's just what we do. We're skeptical of Gen Z and their TikTok revival. Is this just another performance for social media? And this question has been asked in many different ways and responded to by people who are a lot closer to the situation and a lot godlier than I am. But who really cares what I think? This is what I know. Gen Z is exhausted and desperate, not for attention. They're tired of attention. That's exactly the problem that they're trying to run away from. They want an experience of Jesus. And go read the testimonies of the Asbury Revival students. They're kind of sick of the attention. They wish everyone else would stop paying attention to their revival. I am skeptical of experience. That's another way to say this. I've always been skeptical and borderline cynical of experience or else the experience of Jesus. A lot of people talk about this. Doctrine and reading and information, this is my happy place. That's where I like, that's, I'm comfortable there. I can do that. And yet, and yet when I am in a dry season, I don't, I don't turn to doctrine. In a dry season when my faith is small, And last night I went to bed feeling very small in faith, very small in faith. In those moments, I remember moments of glorious delight, and here's some of them. When God captivated my heart with a song in high school, Worlds Apart by Jars of Clay. And every time I play that song, tears come to my eyes. Life-changing experiences like doing my laundry in someone's basement, and I don't know who they were or what their name was, but it was someone's basement in Olathe, Kansas, my freshman year of college, and I didn't have anything else to do, and Lord, 
Thank the Lord I didn't have a cell phone at that point in my life. And so I pulled out my Bible and I, I vividly remember falling in love with the Bible for the first time. As a Christian kid who had been uh, the Bible quiz champion my whole life. That was my identity and yet I didn't love it. I remember that experience. I point back to it all the time. I never really felt Jesus' temptation in the wilderness until I watched a movie that was reflecting on Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. I never really felt Eve's temptation in the Garden of Eden until I read C.S. Lewis's Paralandria. And I could keep going, I could keep going, I could keep going. I never really began to experience the transfiguration even until I read Malcolm Geith's poem a few months ago. So I'm trying to get a little bit more comfortable with my experience side here this morning. That's what we're going to focus on. This series has had a lot of teaching about Jesus' identity and our union with Him, or else our identity that is found in Him. We're not declaring it for ourselves, we're receiving it as a gift, but we need, we need more than teaching. We need to experience Jesus. This is true throughout the history of the church. Not all the time, or else we don't need to chase after him like a drug addict who is always seeking a high from Jesus. That's not really what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about this sort of consumer Christianity. But God, for our good and for his glory, he graciously gives us mountaintop experiences, moments in time that we can remember. And I've been talking a lot about remembering our baptism, remembering our baptism. I would liken all of these experiences to that moment of awakening at baptism by faith in the Spirit. But we need these experiences to shake us and to wake us and to sustain us in the dark valleys of life. And my contention here this morning, and I'm going to show it to you a little bit, is the, the experience of Jesus, not necessarily the teaching of Jesus, although I don't want to pit those two things together because they go together. They do go together. The experience of Jesus changed the world. It changed the world and it's still changing the world today. Last Sunday, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, or else the Sermon on the Mount, we encountered the teaching of Jesus on that mountaintop. And today, we encounter an experience of Jesus on another mountaintop in Matthew chapter 17. This is the Mount of Transfiguration. It's a nameless high mountain. Both mountaintop scenes proclaim the same message, but in different ways. One is through teaching, and one is through experience. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets. In Matthew chapter 17, the law and the prophets are embodied. They're standing up, talking to Jesus. This is Matthew chapter 17. In Matthew chapter 5, we are told that Jesus came to fulfill or else to complete the story of the law and the prophets. In Matthew chapter 17, Peter wanted to build three tents. He responds to this vision of the law and the prophets or else Moses and Elijah having a conversation with Jesus and he wants to build three different tents for them. But Moses and Elijah's tents were really only rooms in the one tent. 
This is the scene. Jesus is the place of God's presence on earth. He is the everlasting tabernacle. He is God's presence here with us on earth. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus declares God's law on God's holy mountain. And in Matthew chapter 17, Jesus fulfills God's law on God's holy mountain. The bright cloud of the Spirit surrounds the Father, it surrounds Him, and the Father declares that His Son is beloved. And when the disciples heard this, and when they saw this scene before their eyes, and they heard this declaration of the Father to His Son, what did they do? They fell on their faces and were terrified. Verse 7, but Jesus came and he touched them. He touched them, saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. This is the language of experience. We don't need three tenths. We need to lift up our eyes and see Jesus only. We don't need more information. We need to learn wisdom through experience. You don't have to be afraid of chat GPT. Information isn't the goal of life. We don't need a painting of a mountain. We need to hike up a mountain. We don't need to compare lists of Old Testament laws with New Testament laws as beneficial as that is. We need to see Moses and Elijah delighting to see Jesus in his glory. That's what we need in our hearts by faith this morning. Man cannot live by deep systematic theology alone. We need imaginative stories that reflect God's glory. We don't fall down afraid of the law of God and Moses' shining face reflecting God's glory like at Mount Sinai. That's not what we do. With knees trembling, we fall down upon our face before Jesus' face which is not reflecting God's glory, but John says that he's, or Matthew says that he's shining like the sun. His face is the source of light. He's shining like the sun at the Mount of Transfiguration. We cannot settle for TikTok or Instagram, or if you're old like me, Facebook relationships on screens. We can't do that. Put down your phone we were made to be face-to-face -face with real people. This is what the experience of the transfiguration points us to. We will never be satisfied with mere words on a page. We need an imaginative, spirit-filled experience of the Word made flesh in Holy Scripture. This is what we desperately need in many times and many places throughout our life. So I want to conclude not with an argument for this, but with testimony, with four testimonies of experience. The first testimony of experience, I'm looking to the Apostle Peter. Who do you say I, that I am? This is the question asked just before our reading in Matthew chapter 16 by Jesus. And Peter, of all the disciples, you guys know Peter, he replied to Jesus' question, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Good answer, Peter. Good answer. And Jesus replied to Peter, I'm going to build my church on you. 
Good job, right? You answered the right question. Jesus, that's the, that's the Sunday school answer. And he was the best kid in Sunday school. I love Peter. That's where I love Peter. And Jesus, after that, he began not to say, but the text says he began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die and be raised on the third day. He showed, him, he showed them this. For the first time, and Peter replied to Jesus in Matthew chapter 16, This shall never happen to you. So he keeps his boldness up. He got a good answer, and now he gets a bad answer. And Jesus responded, Get behind me, Satan. This is the conversation right before our reading, Matthew chapter 17. And the text says that six days later, Jesus took Peter and James and John up on a high mountain to bless them. This, this, this uh, account from Matthew chapter 17 is told from the orientation of the apostles, from these disciples who were there with him. So it's for them. He's doing it for them to show them that he must die and be raised on the third day. How? How is he blessing them on this mountain? Imagine. Use your, use your imagination a little bit that they are alone on a great and quiet mountain. It's just, there's stillness for miles and miles, high upon a mountain, feeling the rush and awe of standing upon a precipice. Have you walked on a mountaintop path before? This kind of feeling. A pure light and a cloud stretched out before them. John Chrysostom describes the scene like this. Amazement arose on every side, and they fell on their faces in both fear and adoration at the same time. Malcolm Geit, reflecting on this scene, says it like this. A mountaintop moment of clear vision is granted to the disciples before they descend into the confusing and sometimes blinding fog of the events that lead to the apparent defeat at the crucifixion. Geit describes the terrible day of Jesus' crucifixion, or else the experience of Good Friday from the perspective of a disciple, and I imagine that it's Peter, and how his memory of the experience of the transfiguration sustains him. He doesn't look back in Geit's imagination. He doesn't look back upon the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. They'll get to that teaching later after Jesus ascends or after Jesus resurrects and before he ascends. He's looking back on the experience of the transfiguration. And this is what Geit says in his poem, At the Foot of the Cross. For that one moment... In and out of time, on that one mountain where all moments meet, the daily veil that covers the sublime and darkling glass fell dazzled at his feet. There were no angels full of eyes and wings, just living glory full of truth and grace. The love that dances at the heart of things shone out upon us from a human face. And to that light, the light in us leaped up. We felt it quicken somewhere deep within. A sudden blaze of long extinguished hope. 
trembled and tingled through the tender skin. Nor can this blackened sky, this darkened scar, eclipse that glimpse of how things really are. But we don't have to take Malcolm Geith's word for it. Peter wrote a letter to this same effect. Hear this from 2 Peter in, verse, in chapter 1 and verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, Peter says. You will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. We need the felt experience of the glory of Jesus. Second testimony, James. James, the son of Zebedee, he didn't write any letters. He's not the famous James from our New Testament. He had no grand speeches like the first martyr Stephen, who, Luke says, was full of the Holy Spirit at his martyrdom. Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit, and he gazed up to heaven, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. No, James doesn't have that kind of an account. Acts chapter 12 and verse 1. Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. That's his story. That's James's testimony. James, the son of Zebedee, he was faithful to the end. He did not deny his Lord. He was forced to his knees before Herod's sword, feeling the hard ground. And I imagine James remembering the experience as his knees hit the ground before Herod the king. And he feels the experience of his knees hitting the ground on the mountain of transfiguration. And Jesus lifting his chin and saying, James, have no fear. James, have no fear. Here's my attempt at poetry to describe James at the moment of his martyrdom. His knees have known this ground before, once felled before the sight of heaven's glory in a face that shines a holy light. His knees now bent before a king, no tears though death be nigh, now trembling fear ascending here the Son of Man on high. James's brother, the third testimony, John, the beloved disciple, was there on the mountain that day. And he, unlike his brother James, he wrote quite a bit of our New Testament. He was a masterful theologian, and yet all of his theological works, 
the Gospel of John, his letters, as well as the Revelation, and I'm not even going there, talk about images, talk about an encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. I could spend a whole sermon talking about that. This is how his Gospel begins, remembering the experience of Jesus. John chapter 1 and verse 14 The Word, or else Jesus, the Logos, became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. This is the experience of seeing Jesus fulfilling it all, which he grounds his entire gospel upon. 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, perhaps my favorite four verses in the entire Bible. John says it like this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, Notice the experience here, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. It was right there. It was, it was made manifest. And we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, that you may experience the love of God and the love of the Son in the Beloved, that you would have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the experiential language that John bases his theology upon. At the end of his Gospel account, John records Jesus saying these words to Thomas. Have you believed because you have seen me? Have you only believed because you got to stick your fingers in my side, Thomas? Jesus says this to them and to us today. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. My fourth and final testimony, the Apostle Paul. He says in his letter to the Corinthians in chapter 15 that he was un, one untimely born. I love that phrase. That's how I feel. I wish I was at the Mount of Transfiguration, don't you? Can you imagine what it was like to be the other nine disciples that had to hear Peter just ramble on and on about that all the time? Ooh, that would be, that would be terrible. <laughs> I can't imagine being that kind of a jealous disciple. But Paul, who was one untimely born, did not walk with Jesus until much later. But he was blinded. He was, he was blinded because of his experience of Jesus. And this changed the world. This appearing, or else this epiphany to Paul on his way to Damascus, changed the history of the world. 
hear what the Apostle Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened for to this day. When they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Jesus is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. There's an experience of His presence. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transfigured. We all, beholding the glory of the Lord, looking at the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, are being transfigured or else transformed. This is the same language. We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. I don't want to be a cynic. I don't want to be a skeptical person who's always looking down on others. God in Christ wants you to experience Him. This is what He wants for you. You are not like the little idol that you carry around in your pocket. You are not a computer. You were not made to merely download information into your brain. This is what happens when we create an image and then we start talking about ourselves like we are that image. We worship an idol. God made you to experience Him in Christ by the Spirit. This is what we are baptized into. This is what our imaginations are baptized into when we experience art that gives glory to Jesus. This is what our baptized imaginations experience in creation when we walk upon a mountain precipice or in poetry. Wow, I'm turning into a pretentious person. In poetry, really? Wow. I can't believe 2023 Chris is saying this. In face-to-face relationships, we experience bodily Christ before us. As water washes over you in baptism, think about our identity at the beginning of this series. An experience, an experience of being found in Christ through the waters of baptism. And as you come to this table and you eat and drink, you eat and drink. So I invite you to come and kneel and experience Jesus this morning. Feel, even as the disciples felt on that holy mountain, the fear of the Lord. And as I, by God's grace, get to pronounce the words of absolution over you this morning, hear them as Christ 
speaking over you. Don't be afraid. He lifts your chin. Don't be afraid, little one. Come and kneel and repent and experience Him and come and taste and see that the Lord is good. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please stand. Let us confess our faith in the words of the 